Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. I'm thrilled to be sitting here with Dr. El Ziegler, the new Rosh Beit Midrash at Matan and its academic director, and of course, beloved lecturer here at Matan and at Herzog College. Yael and I are going to spend the next four episodes discussing biblical characterization. Often when reading Tanakh, people clasp onto one pasuk or a midrashic interpretation and develop ideas and perceptions of the characters based on a somewhat narrow approach to them. And while there are multiple meaningful approaches to Tanakh study, in these episodes we will be discussing biblical characterization through the use of literary tools that help the reader uncover how the text tries to frame the character. Does it criticize the character? Does it leave neutral judgment? Does it reflect on them positively? While there are open statements of judgment like Vayera b'nei Hashem o Vayitav b'nei Hashem that it, something was pleasing the eyes of God or displeasing the eyes of God, those are really the minority of cases. And most often, we as the learners are called upon to pick up on subtle hints and ways of writing which reflect the narrator's perspective on the character. Hi, Yosefa. I'm excited to be having this discussion with you about characterization in Tanakh. You know, I, I think that something that happens all the time is that when we're mining the text for meaning, um, we tend to clasp on to a pasuk or to an interpretation. And I want to just emphasize that there's nothing wrong with that. And ultimately, we're here to learn Tanakh for the meaning we make from uh, from the stories that we've all grown up on and, and grown into. Um, but what I really want to do here is give people some tools to approach the text in a more sophisticated way, to be able to read a story and understand that sometimes the structure of the story uh, invites us to assess the character in a certain way, or word usage, or lack of dialogue, or the dialogue itself. And there are so many nuanced ways that the text gives us these these avenues through which we can understand the characters. Yeah, well, I think we're really picking up on the cues that the Tanakh give us, because as you said before, it's pretty rare in Tanakh that the Tanakh offers a direct characterization, offering an opinion, and sometimes even in the most almost jarring ways. You know, you might see an episode uh, or something that a character does, and it's obvious to you that it's troubling behavior. And then the Tanakh doesn't weigh in on it. And so I think it's often up to us to dig deeper and to understand what are the ramifications of that behavior. How does the story play out afterwards that might cast some kind of you know negative light or some kind of judgment in a more subtle way. And, and what I think is beautiful about this is that it pulls us in, right? It, it involves us. It makes us think about it and not simply be passive readers who are being told what to think about the behavior. Because fundamentally, what the Tanakh is showing us is is a portrait of humans who go about their lives, uh, and and their lives are complex, and their behavior is complex, as is the behavior of human beings. And so, what the Tanakh is trying to show us is not this one. This is good behavior. This is bad behavior. But how does good and bad behavior impact upon our lives? Right. So you're saying we don't even need necessarily the sentence of that something was good in the eyes of God or bad in the eyes of God, because ultimately behavior 
falls upon a continuum that's much more complex. And what interests us more than judging or blaming the characters is understanding how their how their behavior impacted the rest of the continuum of their life that happens afterward. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, just to give an example, I think a pretty well known example is Yaakov's uh, deceives his father, and and along with his mother, along with Rivka, and there's you know kind of a that story kind of trails off without any any consequence and you know we're sort of left wondering was it okay does the does the torah think that that's okay is that a is that a reasonable way to interact with one's parent especially in collusion with another parent and then you know later on in the story Yaakov's deceit comes back at him in the story with Lavan, right? In the story where, uh, you yeah. know, where Lavan says to him, you know, that's not the way we work in this place. You know, you don't marry the younger before you marry the elder. And it sort of echoes with this sense of what goes around comes around. And so the, the, the Torah offers us some very subtle tools for understanding the impact of one's behavior upon the world. If you engage in deceit, deceit is going to come back to you. And that's not necessarily the kind of world that we want to be part of. That's not the kind of world that, or, you know, that's not the way we want to contribute to the world. We want to create a different sort of world. Yeah, that's a great point. It also reminds me of David's life, but we'll we'll come back to those uh, as we continue on in our episodes. Uh, I do just want to have a small conversation with you about the word character. Uh, you know, already at the start of the conversation, we've revealed very much, perhaps, uh, the literary orientation of this conversation. Uh, I would say in Hebrew also we use the word dmut. Uh, dmut is sometimes, it sounds, it can sound less literary than the word character. Uh, maybe in English we would use the word figure. Um, and for us, it's sort of, in our Tanakh genetics that we use literary tools to understand the text. That's sort of how each of us was trained. Um, but before we, we go deeper into this, I do want to address the tone and the language of the conversation, which does approach the biblical characters in a relatively human way. Uh, because for many, and I've, I've experienced this when I, you know, you teach different audiences, that for many, that's a difficult, those are difficult words to digest. They don't sound right. They don't feel right. And they're hardened in their soul. Uh, and so I wanted to just sort of bring that here, put that on the table. Uh, and say that there are a number of approaches to how we discuss biblical characters. Um, we could describe them, and I'll say that these approaches go back to our earliest Rishonim, at the earliest rabbinic uh, exegesis on Tanakh, and these debates get revived every couple of years also here in Israel. Uh, they don't only circle around, do we speak about characters as characters? Do we use literary tools? The the debates go deeper than that and they have other nuances to them. But I will say in regards to this conversation that we have the approach that looks at biblical characters and tries to portray them more, I would say, more saintly than the text itself often seems to present them as. I'm already putting in a judgment there of that, <laughs> of that opinion. Um, and that would be, you know, to a certain degree, uh, the example you brought before of Yaakov uh, taking the bracha, taking the blessing from his brother Esav, and there are different commentators who take that for what it is and respond to it critically, and others who try and figure out why what Yaakov did was was okay, and it was within the realm of, of the desire of God. 
Um, there is also an approach that really speaks about them as humans, uh, but that they're presented as flawed humans uh, and that they have a human nature, but it is clearly beyond the regular human nature that we speak about in our world. Um, I think that if I could just bring an example from of Hersha's commentary on Avraham, Avraham going down to Egypt. Rav Hirsch, uh, in his commentary on Sefer Breshit Perik Yudbet, uh, he says, with these words, we come to a story when at first glance seems not a little striking. Okay, and here's where Avraham, after being told Lech Lecha to go to Eretz Canaan, he then experiences famine and immediately leaves Eretz Yisrael and goes to Egypt. That Avraham should forsake the land to which he had been directed and not trust to God who knows how to provide in hunger and desert, that he, as it seems on the surface, should expose the moral well-being of his wife to such danger just to save himself. Uh, and I'm skipping a little bit, but he says, and here Avraham committed a great sin in his behavior towards his wife, and even his deserting the land to which he had been directed was already a wrong in which he sinned, that he need not have misled us or worried us. The Torah never presents our great men as being perfect. It defies no man, says of none, here you have the ideal and this man, the divine, became human. Altogether, it puts the life of no man before us as a pattern out of which we are to learn what is right and good, what we have to do, what, ref- what to refrain from doing. Uh, Rav Hirsch goes on here, but he really puts forth this idea that we're supposed to be able to learn from the biblical characters, and if they were perfect, we wouldn't really have anything to learn from. Yeah, well, I think it's a delicate balance. I mean, these are our most esteemed and beloved Figures, they are our forefathers and foremothers, and we grow up with them. I mean, you know, for people who are in the educational system and in the, you know, the, the world of learning the Bible from a very young age, these are our beloved figures. And so we want to be careful. We want to be careful. We want, I, I certainly uh, feel that we should always speak in a reverential and respectful manner. Um, that is to say, to always, uh, you know, to always approach these figures with the respect that is due them in terms of their position uh, in not just in 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 the stories but more importantly in our lives right there may be a little bit of dissonance in the way that they're presented in the specific stories where they do interact as human beings um, and the way that we have adopted them in our lives as Heroic and, you know, figures who are the forefathers of our nation. And that having been said, I tend to agree with Reverse, which is that, you know, when you do read through the stories, I think that there is, um, it, it is important to see their humanness in the stories. Look, again, part of this is an educational question. To what are we educating? Are we educating our students, our, you know, our uh, members of the community to regard human beings as having the potential or, or being unflawed, right? Certainly those who are in, in, uh, the Tanakh, not to have any flaws. I don't know if unflawed is a word. Let me try that again. Are we educating our students to see the figures in Tanakh as not having any flaws, as flawless? Um, or are we, are we, are we trying to See these stories as showing human beings in with their foibles and their um, 
possibilities of making mistakes and moral errors that we are meant to learn from. And as I said, as I said before, my example, Anya Akov, not only do we learn from them in terms of looking at that story in which, you know, the behavior is troubling, um, but also as to how that behavior impacts upon the world so that the Torah becomes a story of a family that is constantly improving, that is being gradually educated towards a certain kind of moral approach toward the world and, and, and toward each other, which is one that you know we have to keep working at because it's not something necessarily that comes naturally to humans or naturally to societies, but it's something that you know we, we're, we're fighting certain impulses. And, and then I think many of the figures in Tanakh become um, good role models for us, not just good role models as to how to attain perfect behavior, because I don't think that that is you know, that's not something that I think is possible, but how to um, work with our imperfections and how to, even when we do fall, and of course, you mentioned before David, and we'll talk about that later, but that's a, you know, obviously a classic example. When we do fall, how to pick ourselves up again, how to, you know, pull ourselves up out of that um, difficult situation that we fell into. Yeah, you know, I want to add two things. One is that I feel like I didn't present enough um, the more saintly position uh, and say that while the word itself saints is reflective of, of a, I think a, a school of thought that is somewhat more Christian influenced and I do believe that um, and that's an academic debate amongst the, the exegetes who do try and whitewash more of the very plain sense issues that come up in the text the ideological piece behind that is saying some of us like to know that there is someone out there that does things near perfectly, meaning many of us feel comforted with that. Some of us have a, a more, I would say, naturalistic perspective, and we just appreciate seeing that there are, you know, the biblical figures make mistakes, and as you said, are able to come back and develop from those mistakes. And there are other people out there who gain tremendous strength from knowing that there are biblical figures out there who are far beyond any realm I meaning they want to know that there is that there is and there was you know, roots to our people that go far beyond anything that they can ever imagine and that that itself gives them strength so i don't want to god forbid minimize that perspective it's not the one that i naturally gravitate towards um, but that is a perspective that many uh find uh, significant for them. But other piece that I want to say is you were mentioning before that it's a, an educational question. And I think another piece of the educational question is how do we present this idea at different levels? Meaning it's very, how I will speak to a second grade classroom about Yaakov Avinu will be very different than how I teach in a high school classroom. And that'll be different than how I teach in Matan. And it'll be different than how I teach to students in a Midrashah. Uh, and so there's, even with all of the uh, intellectual integrity, me looking at the text, I also as a teacher will speak differently and use different language depending on who I am, who, who's sitting in front of me. Because I think that there is an educational significance to presenting the, our, certainly our patriarchs and matriarchs as 
well beyond um, anything that we can envision. I think that that's educationally important as we are younger and keep growing older. Uh, and I'll speak differently when I speak to adults about family dynamics in Safer Brace Sheets. Uh, it's, and I will say that this podcast, you know, we're aiming for that audience. We're speaking to the adult audience who has grown up with these, uh, with these stories and with these people uh, in their lives. And we want to get to, to that, I would say, that nuanced, slightly more naturalistic and sometimes more textually sophisticated approach. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll just mention one more thing, and, you know, I won't elaborate, but I think there's a certain danger in presenting human beings as flawless um, because, I mean... Personally, I don't want my children to look around at the, you know, uh, different humans that they know and think that they're flawless. They're in for a disappointment because, you know, I know a lot of wonderful people, but, you know, pretty much nobody that's flawless. So it's important, I think, to recognize at the outset that the Tanakh is a very realistic offers a very realistic portrayal and that's good that's important it's important for our children and and for for us to recognize that human beings are working towards um being moral and and being spiritual and creating a, a society that is a, a, a wonderful society founded on, on on justice that's not something that happens naturally it's not like you know i'm just born uh you know good uh we're born with potential to be good and, and we have to work really hard at that and that's a wonderful lesson in my opinion I think it's important to note that you know there are different kinds of Tanakh figures. Uh, we have you know certain figures that we get their whole story, and you know from the beginning to the end. You know, like a uh, a Moshe, right? Who we'll talk about during this this series of podcasts. Um, a very well developed character. You know, we might call them in academic terms a round character, right? Someone who really develops and we see them from the beginning to the end. You know, we have Moshe at his birth, we have Moshe at his death. It's not the same Moshe, right? You know, and that's something that we want to pay attention to. Um, other characters have a very uh, long story about them, but they're not necessarily characters that change very much. That's often called a flat character. I'm not sure if that's a great term. <clears throat> But, you know, uh, I'll give you an example of, of, of a character that doesn't change very much, and that is an Eliyahu. Now, the reason I don't like the term flat is because that seems he's to... He's not flat. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's not flat, but he never changes. No, I'm saying you wouldn't look at him and say, that's someone who is static, but in terms right. of the development of getting to know him, he is static. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, he... he I, I like to say, because Eliyahu comes into the scene with this great passion and this great fire and the willingness to bring drought 
upon the people. I mean, in his, in his anger and he leaves in a great fire. Right. And so, you know, and, and, and God tries to get Eliyahu to kind of tone it down at some point and Eliyahu just can't. And so, you know, God says, okay, then, you know, go appoint Elisha, Elisha, you know, I'm not interested in, in, in this fire as an, as your exclusive tool, you know, in your toolkit. And so what I always say about Eliyahu is that Eliyahu can't be less than Eliyahu, right? Which means that he operates at this one kind of frequency throughout. And, you know, some of our figures, I don't know, you have a Yosef, who is such a different Yosef at the end than he is at the beginning, right? And that's a really, um, a really dynamic character. I like the term dynamic and static more. Um, you know, and, and then, of course, a third type of character that we have in Tanakh is is uh, a, what we would call a minor character who acts more as an agent, right? Something, a, a character that functions to either highlight another character or to push forward the plot of a story, but doesn't actually have its own agency, right? Uh, you know, so we can give lots of examples of that. You Avishag. Might, yeah, Avishag, go ahead. Yeah, meaning I think that these characters, I will also say that when it comes to less textual analysis, often our um, our internal space wants us to wants us to make them bigger. Meaning we tend to want to make them bigger than what they are in the narrative. Um, but these are characters who are purposefully small. They're small, but they have very great impact. And as you said, whether their job is to uh, be a foil to the to the main character. Or to have a small function in the uh, in the story, but actually reverberates tremendously afterwards. So, what are other examples that you're thinking of? Well, you know, I just before I give another example, I just will say one thing because you know, even though we're talking about how the literary text um, uh, defines characters and 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 illustrates its characters, I do have to say one thing about the midrash here, which is that the midrash has a very interesting relationship with these minor characters because the midrash. It often sees itself as a pedagogical tool. And so it will take these characters and it will often give them either um, a new identity, right? It, there's a principle in the Midrash called conservation of biblical characters. Yeah. So if it sees... Leave, a, leave nobody anonymous. Yeah. If it sees either a minor character or an anonymous character, it will often identify that character with a more uh, well-known character. You know, a good example being, I don't know, uh, Yiska is Sarai, right? Yiska is mentioned, you know, in this one pasuk in Bereshit Perakid Aleph, and everyone's wondering, why is she mentioned? What's her role? And so the Midrash will say, well, you know, that's Sarai, and then it makes sense why she's mentioned and what the Tanakh is trying to say by mentioning her. Of course, it leads us with the question of why the Tanakh doesn't tell us that Sarai should be identified with Yiska. And as you as you noted, another very interesting thing that the Midrash will do is take anonymous characters and give them names, right? Can I tell you one of my favorite ones? Yeah, go ahead. Is the the child who's revived by Eliyahu is Yonah Hanavi, which I, I love that one because it's sort of, I think it, it gets really to the essence of Yonah Hanavi and he imbibes that zealot spirit that Eliyahu has and that he's then brings that on to the rest of his mission and his whole dialogue with God. But that's one of my favorite ones that so we take the anonymous son and we turn him, yeah. according to Chazal, yeah. into, into Yonah Hanavi. Well, what's beautiful about that is that they're actually opposites, right? Eliyahu is zealous for God and Yonah is zealous for the people, which you know the Midrash points out. 
Um, yeah, so that, you know, that, those are some examples of, you know, minor figures. Uh, you have, I mean, you have them really all over Tanakh, you know, these kind of figures that, that, that hover on the edge of the story or in the backdrop of the story. And they kind of come in and, and they enter and they disappear without, usually without any introduction. And, you know, just sort of have a role in pushing forward the the plot of the story. So I don't know, you have the bleat, right? Uh, the um, the refugee from the war of the four kings and the five kings, you know, who who, who shows up uh, to tell Avram that Lot has been captured. I mean, you know, who is he? Why doesn't he have a name? What is his role in the story? Why not just right? tell us that he's told that he's captured? I Meaning why go, why make the effort to say it was a pelit? I Meaning that, that's the, the question that's at the basis right. of that. Yeah. But one other thing, I'm curious if you agree with this, which is that what I think I want us to put forward in these episodes is that the Midr- I think the Midrash offers another layer, meaning before we look at the Midrash, I want us to see what are the dimensions of that character within the text. Meaning if you read the the text, the, the Midrashim about uh, Hatach, right, from, from, uh, from Megillat Esther, or about, in many places, the minor characters are made much bigger than they are in the text itself. And I think that what I would like to try and give across here is that there is importance, significance, and interpretive depth to understanding the character within the dimensions that the text has offered them as we see before we move into a Midrashic reading, which often plays with the dimensions of, of each character, making them wider, making them narrower, depending on the context itself. Uh, I'm curious if you agree with that. I know our opinions on Midrash are a little bit different. Yeah. So um, on one level, I do agree with it. I think we always start with the text, and we don't want to confuse the text with the Midrash, which of course, as we know, is oftentimes an educational fallacy. In other words, we see it all the time. There's certain Midrashim that, you know, really across the board, people think that they're in the Tanakh until they start reading the Tanakh. And famously, Nechama Leibowitz used to ask her students to look for the story of Avram and the Kivshana Eish, and they'd be looking and looking and looking, and they'd say, oh no, my Tanakh is flawed, right? My Tanakh isn't complete. So, you know, there is a certain um, educational goal in making sure that we are very clear that we know the text, that we're reading it first as it's written. Um, where, where perhaps we, 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 we diverge, and I'm not sure, I mean, you can tell me, is that when I, when I do go look at the Midrash, I, and I, and I try to, uh, understand the, the profound idea that underlies the Midrash, and what I'm looking for in the Midrash is how the Midrash is using these ideas that sometimes seem far from the Pshat in order to direct our attention toward what we call Omek Pshuto Shalmikra, the, the deep, uh, uh, simple meaning of the story, which means in, in my mind that the Midrash will often direct our attention to the message of the story by using sometimes rather fantastical ideas, you know, ideas that seem far from the text. So, you know, and I, I, I believe that the Midrash is, is often doing that and it's often doing that in very subtle and profound ways. And maybe we'll see some examples as we progress. I don't think we really disagree on that. I, I, uh, I think that's true. I also just think, though, that we have to be aware that the Midrashic perspective on the text is, 
it functions under uh, many other principles that are not the, certainly not the same as you know a, a, what we would call a modern academic literary approach, meaning their, their basic assumptions about time, about, uh, as I said, dimensions, about boundaries of text. They have much more, it's, it's really the, the biblical text is, is a mystical playground, I think, for, for much of Chazal. And so they play with it in ways, as you said, are fantastical or in ways that are extremely creative that go far beyond the boundaries of how the text itself looks. From a, from a spiritual perspective, I have absolutely no, take no issue with that whatsoever. Sometimes on a textual basis, it, 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 it stretches my boundaries as far as they can go. One interesting thing when it comes to Tanakh figures is that, you know, you can have some very important figures with very short stories and some, you know, with longer stories. And and moreover, the information that we get about each of the characters doesn't necessarily follow a an expected pattern, right? So that, you know, I mean, the obvious example is some people get a birth story and other people, we meet them much later in their life and we hear, we hear nothing about their birth. And, you know, in the case of Avram, not only did we hear nothing about his birth, but we hear nothing about him in the first 75 years of his life, right? So, the, you know, why does, and he's such an important figure, why doesn't he get a birth story? Others, of course, you know, um, Moshe, Shimshon, Shmuel, they get birth stories. You know, the same question can be asked at the other end of life, which is people's death. Not everybody has a, do we get a story about their death? Um, you know, some people just sort of disappear at some point from, from the, the, the book. Uh, you know, uh, an example that comes to mind is Rifka, right? Who's clearly a very central figure. Um, but she just, she, she just fades away. Um, and others get a very elaborate, death story, right? So you have, you know, I don't know, ya- Yaakov, who has this long uh, last will and testament to his sons, or, you know, a Moshe, who also uh, gets a very uh, long story of his death, Shaul, David. right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the question as to um, what information the different um, the different characters? What information do we get about the different characters? Is a really important thing to pay attention to, right? You know, the same can be said for marriage stories, right? Some people just show up married, right? And you know, we we don't know anything. We don't know anything about their wife, about how they met them, about whether there was a well involved, right? Um, you know, so so it's it's an interesting thing, and it's an important thing, I think, not just interesting, but it's an important thing to pay attention to, whose story. Stories start out with a, an elaborate birth story. I mean, everybody's born, right? Um, and and you know, why do some people um, get more elaborate stories than others? And obviously, it all boils down to. I mean, it all comes down to um, what how the Tanakh is trying to present this person. I think when people are, are do get an elaborate birth story, it's very clear that their birth story is somehow meant to um, feature in who they are, right? And, and we're supposed to be keeping in mind that they were born into a certain reality or a certain destiny or a certain context. And that context is going to be critical for our understanding their role in the story. You know, as you as you explain that, two ideas pop up uh, in the world of biblical marriages, which is a favorite topic. Um, 
I think an important idea also to introduce here is what Robert Alter made famous as biblical type scenes, although there are many, many others who spoke about a similar idea. Chazal spoke about the the biblical scene of meeting your wife at the well long before any modern uh, scholar. Um, but what's an important idea to know is that when there are repeated scenes, like the birth scene, the death scene, the meeting your wife scene, uh, one of the most fruitful ways to analyze those stories is to compare the different versions of them to each other. Uh, and when we compare them, we find the common features, but what's more significant is we find the features that are different. So if we take the uh, the, the meeting your wife story, uh, we have the story of Yaakov meeting, uh, going to the well after running away from his family. I mean, he's a refugee. He has, he has nobody and he gracefully stumbles upon, uh, stumbles upon Rachel. And that scene where he meets Rachel is full of difficulty. Uh, there's the well that's covered by the stone, uh, and there's the people, there's the other shepherds that are harassing. And, and the scene there, while in many ways is very similar to, uh, to earlier and then later scenes that will come, it's marked by, by difficulty. It's marked by struggle. And, and it makes sense because Yaakov is the, is the patriarch who's always, he's always in struggle. A lot of times it's against himself, uh, but sometimes it's also against others and and so his scene is not idyllic in the same way that others others are but it's a scene that's full of that's full of a bit of struggle and that he meets the woman but then he can't actually have her right away he has to work for so long and so there the Yaakov uh you know marriage betrothal scene is is very much in consonance with with his life as precedes it and his life that comes after it yeah. I mean, I would just add to that, that, um, Yaakov's life is marked by struggle. And, you know, uh, Professor Jan Fokelman, who, uh, is a, uh, uh, um, uh, wonderful professor of Tanakh, um, writes that Yaakov's life is marked by stones. He has lots right. of stones in his path. And that's true, right? There are stones all over Yaakov's life. But that I would add that, his 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 well scene is not merely about struggle. It's also about overcoming struggle because he summons up that strength and he pushes that boulder off of the well. And that's also later on when he struggles with that mysterious man. This man says to him, "Lo yamer od ki im Yisrael ki sarita im Elohim v'im anashim vatuchal." Right, your name will no longer be called Yaakov, but Yisrael, for you have struggled with. God and with men, and you have prevailed. So that even at his well scene, we're sensing that Yaakov is a a person who can overcome struggle. Look, it's true. He doesn't get to marry Rachel right away, but eventually he does, right? Yeah. So it, it takes many years. His, his path is, is more difficult, but he eventually is able to, to triumph over all the, the challenges in his way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's, that, I think that your point that you made before, which is that we're supposed to be comparing uh, these different marriage stories, which, you know, certainly uh, Robert Alter expands upon that at great length. And by the way, I will say something about Robert Alter, which is that he um, uh, considers himself very, um, gra- he's very grateful to, to the Midrash. He loves the Midrash, yeah, and he talks about it, that he learned a lot from the world of Midrash in his readings of biblical narrative. So that's just, I think that that's a wonderful thing because he's a you know, professor, I think, at Berkeley. Um, in any case, uh, one thing that, that, that I think uh, I could add to this idea that you should be looking at all the stories 
in a comparative way, all of the birth stories, all of the marriage stories. So I'll give you another example, which is that, you know, we have many different birth stories in Tanakh, and they all seem to kind of unfold in a similar way, right? You know, there's a woman who is infertile, and she's very distressed, and she either turns to her husband or, or tries to you know, undergo some sort of, t- take upon herself some sort of um, pragmatic action, like taking her maidservant and giving her to her husband. And then, you know, a child is born in, in a miraculous way. Uh, and by the way, at the end of the story, this child's life is, is threatened. But if we turn to the Shimshon story, what's very striking in that story is that there's no distress Right. In other words, you know, we have this description of a woman who is akara viloyalada. Right? She's infertile. She didn't have a child, um, and that's it. Right? She doesn't have any. Um, uh, she's not troubled by it. She doesn't. Uh, she doesn't daven. She doesn't turn to her husband. She doesn't undertake any sort of practical action. And instead, a malach Hashem, right, an angel of God just appears to her and says, you know, you're infertile and you don't have any children. I'm going to give you a child, right? And, and you know, her response is also very um, jarring. She just sort of goes home and tells her husband, and she only tells him a, a, a kind of a, an abridged v- version of what the angel tells her. And she doesn't seem to have the same desire for a child or the same kind of, you know, um, distress over not having a child. I'll say two things that I think are striking about this. One thing that is striking is that in the Pasuk, before we meet um, Shimshon's mother, uh, we uh, the the pasuk describes Am Yisrael doing evil in the eyes of God. You know the pattern of Sefer Shoftim, which is that Am Yisrael sin and God punishes them. And what's the next part of the pattern? They're supposed to cry out to God, right? So the the pattern of Sefer Shoftim is sin, punishment, crying out, and then God saves them, right? And so in the pasuk before the mother of Shimshon, we have sin punishment, and it ends there. There's no crying out. And so the mother of Shimshon, her lack of distress over the future, over her continuity, seems to mirror the period in which, seems to mirror Am Yisrael at this time, right? And what seems to me, we're at the end of Sefer Shoftim in terms of the stories. This is, Shimshon is our last Shofet. He's our last judge. And what this story seems to kind of move us towards is this feeling of despair, despair over the future, right? What's going to happen? What's going to be with Am Yisrael? Well, the people have sort of, I think, really kind of moved into this almost numb um, situation where they no longer feel um, the the ability to turn to God, or the or the maybe they're they're disoriented, right? They don't know how to emerge from this uh, state of despair and despair over the future to to the degree that they don't even turn to God. So I think that that's you know something that we have to pay attention to. Yeah, I think that um, also if we speak about who gets birth stories and who doesn't, that there's an entire parak, entire chapter devoted to Shimshon's birth, which is even longer than Moshe, for example, um, who gets, you know, about 10 psukim. 
and and that that chapter really builds up our expectations and there's a lot of discussion also about so what do we do with that where we have this whole expectation and he's going he has a, a longer birth story than some of the patriarchs you know and so and then when you read the story of Shimshon that of course is a, another series of narratives that present us with many moral questions uh, regarding Shimshon and what he was supposed to offer and what he was supposed to be like um and I don't know how you think about it, but I generally think about the that birth story as also it's sort of that point of disappointment regarding the Shoftim. And you have this big buildup, which as you artfully pointed out, is there are certain things amiss there. Um, and then you get to the story of Shimshon and we, we feel disappointed uh, in, in what we expected to happen based on the big buildup of this child who will be born and the parents who are who are who are infertile and the malach and the whole scene with the with the angel, but then we read the story of Shimshon and we sort of were in despair. We're in despair about about the state of the people at that time. And Shimshon is a character who begins a process, which I know you like to talk about later. That David finishes that process, um, but but Shimshon is someone who who starts the process of defeating the Plishtim, um, but he's not the one who's able to to finish it. Uh, I I do want to say one methodological point, which is that for those who want to listen to these podcasts and try and uh, put some tools into practice, um, so you mentioned that in the beginning of the story of Shimshon's birth, there's no distress on the part of the mother. Now, when when someone reads that at the beginning of the story, we have to be careful when we read into voids, when we read into absences, but we're only able to notice that there isn't distress because we have in the backdrop of our mind the other stories that exist of the other, I think, seven other models of this kind of story where the woman is barren and, and eventually she receives some sort of news that she will, will indeed receive a child. And so when we're, we're trying to be sensitive to the way the text presents the stories, it's always most helpful if we have in our minds the other stories that are like it. Otherwise, I wouldn't necessarily notice that she's not distressed. I, I wouldn't be sensitive to it, but it's only because you are thinking of the other stories that, that, your, that your eye, ear, and heart picks up on that, on that lack. Yeah, and I think in general, the, one of the great themes in Tanakh is how women in, in the stories fight for continuity and fight for children and are willing to do very bold and very innovative things in order to bring about that continuity. So when you do meet a woman like the mother of Shimshon, who, you know, doesn't seem to be able or doesn't seem to want to, you know, kind of um, enlist all of her inner resources to try to change her reality, it's jarring. And it's meant to be jarring, but only if you recognize the larger theme. I, I will say one thing, because I think it's important uh, to, you know, give the fuller picture, which is that there is one other story um, of the women who, who, who are described as not having fertility, where she also doesn't describe any sort of distress and by the way, she's also nameless, right? We didn't mention that. I was going to say, is that uh, why you think that she's nameless in this story? Uh, it's it's more than that. Maybe maybe we will have a chance to talk about yeah. unnamed characters 
uh, you know, why someone like Ashet Manoach, well, like, she's a Chibcho's much more mother. prominent figure in the char- in the narrative than her husband is. Yes, he is presented as the one who's always three steps behind her. Yet yeah, he has a name and she doesn't. So that's a question. I think we we will devote yeah. time to that question. But yeah, who's the other character? She's, she's called Mrs. Manoach, and and um, Rev Breuer, who was pretty sharp, used to call Manoach the husband of Mrs. Manoach, yeah, right? Okay. Which is a great line. Uh, so the other character is the Ishami Shu name. Yeah. And again, I think it's within the context. The, the, she comes up in uh, in Malachim Bet in Perak Dalid. And, uh, during the Elisha stories, right? And, and, you know, Elisha offers her a child because she's, she's very wealthy and she's very prosperous and she, you know, helps Elisha out, you know, with his, giving, giving him room and board. Stay, right, exactly. And he offers her a child and she says, oh, no, no, betocha right? Um, and, you know, there are different ways to understand why she she answers in that way but i'll just i'll just offer one idea which i think coheres very much with what i said about uh, mrs manoach which is that um you know this period of elisha's um prophecy is a period where amisrael is spiraling towards exile and, uh, you know, we mentioned a little bit Eliyahu and Elisha before, and Elisha before, and Eliyahu, I think with all of his fiery personality, we had hope for a turnaround. Elisha is presented as a kinder, gentler personality, mostly, um, but, but, but I think he's kind of, uh, there to help Amisrael towards accepting the inevitable, which is that things are not going to turn around and they are headed on this sort of beeline for destruction and let them take some of the messages of God's compassions with them into exile. And so it seems to me that embedded within this context, the story of Eshet Manoach not being particularly um, excited or, or, or passionate about bringing you know, bringing uh, continuity um, may be part of the broader story of Am Yisrael for some kind of destruction. Now, that having been said, of course, once Eshet Menach does have this child and the child dies, she is desperate, of course, to bring that child back to life. That has no bearing on that part of the story. I think that but, also you know, reflects the depth of human nature, meaning absolutely. you may not have necessarily wanted it, but once that child is yours, you will do everything in your power to protect them and, and give them life. So yeah. I think that that hits to the, the core of who we are as, as moms. Yeah, no, without a doubt, absolutely. Yeah. But that's a really interesting point. I never thought about that. We're going to meet again in our following podcast where we'll be discussing other aspects of, uh, of character development. But uh, this was a great, a great opening. I'm looking forward to the rest of our conversations. Yeah, I am too. I really look forward to continuing this podcast with you, Yosefa. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.